Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Tonight on The Readout. You don't have food. You don't have nothing. Nothing. No life here. No life here. I don't sleep. I, when I close my eye, I see a lot of bombs. I see a lot of houses down. It's not fair. It's not fair. It's not fair. Families, including Americans like that man, wait at Egypt's border, hoping to escape the hell that is Gaza as Israeli troops amass for the expected Gaza invasion. Also tonight, Trump loses again as Judge Tanya Chutkin slaps a partial gag order on him, limiting the bile that he's allowed to spew and who he can direct it to. Plus, Jim Jordan has never passed a single piece of legislation and former House Speaker John Boehner calls him a legislative terrorist. And yet, Jordan appears to be on the verge of becoming the next Republican speaker. But we begin tonight with Israel and Gaza on the brink. Thousands of Israeli forces continue to amass on the Gaza border in the wake of the deadly terrorist attack by Hamas more than a week ago. Approximately 2,000 U.S. troops have been told to prepare for possible deployment in the Middle East if given orders. They will go to a nearby country to be prepared to support Israel. These troops have not yet been activated, and the U.S. government insists it does not mean American boots on the ground. At least the number of Americans killed in the Hamas attack is now at at least 29. The Israeli Defense Forces updated the number of people being held hostage by Hamas to 199. The military wing of Hamas claimed to be holding between 200 and 250 hostages. In Tel Aviv today, Secretary of State Antony Blinken was warned by Israel's defense minister that the upcoming war would be, quote, long and the price for peace, quote, high, but that Israel would win. Blinken later met for more than six hours with Prime Minister Netanyahu and his war cabinet. That followed visits to five Gulf Arab states and Egypt over the weekend. For a time, it appeared that the Rafah crossing from Gaza to Egypt would be opening today, allowing humanitarian aid in, and thousands of dual-nationality Palestinians to leave. However, that crossing remains closed. UN officials have told reporters that civilians in Gaza are drinking seawater because clean water has run out, and that the entire health system in Gaza has collapsed, with acute shortages of body bags, pain medication, and power generation. The UN and the UN aid chief is set to travel to Egypt on Tuesday and also plans to visit Israel. The UN, WHO, and the World Food Program are all ready to deploy assistance. President Biden canceled a planned trip to Colorado this morning so that he and Vice President Harris could receive a briefing from their national security team on the conflict and to hold calls with the leaders of Egypt, Iraq, and Germany. Biden, who is said to be considering a trip to Israel in the coming days, spent the weekend urging calm and warning that it would be a mistake for Israel to reoccupy Gaza. 
Hamas and the extreme elements of Hamas don't represent all the Palestinian people. And uh, I think that uh, it would be a mistake to, uh, for Israel to occupy Gaza again. Do you believe that Hamas must be eliminated entirely? Uh, yes, I do. But there needs to be a Palestinian authority. There needs to be a, a path to a Palestinian state. Meanwhile, Israelis across the political spectrum are seething at the Netanyahu government for what happened more than a week ago. A prominent Israeli host, Dan Shalom, accused Netanyahu of being a war criminal for his security failures. Late this afternoon, the spokesperson for the military wing of Hamas issued a statement saying that Hamas would release foreign prisoners, quote, if the necessary conditions are available for that. He said Hamas militants had taken a number of people of different nationalities hostage without having, quote, the opportunity to verify their identities. A former Hamas official called for the release of the roughly 6,000 Palestinians in Israeli prisons in exchange for the Israeli hostages, who include infants, toddlers, and elderly people. Let's bring in NBC News foreign correspondent Josh Letterman in Haifa, Israel. Uh, Josh, please give us the latest from there. Well, Joy, for people who are trapped in the humanitarian crisis that is the Gaza Strip, today was supposed to be a day when maybe things would get a little bit better. Today was the day that we were told, uh, as of last night, by the Palestinian representative present at the Rafah border crossing between the Gaza Strip and Egypt, uh, that there was a deal in place and that 9 a.m. today, uh, there was going to be an opportunity for foreign Palestinian nationals who are in the Gaza Strip to cross uh, over the border into Egypt and for humanitarian aid to go into the Gaza Strip to deal uh, with the exact kinds of issues that you were just talking about, the lack of food, uh, water, uh, medicine, uh, medical supplies. Uh, and yet that time it came and went and things were not going in and people were not going out. And one of the reasons we learned was that both Hamas and Israel said, in fact, there was no deal in place for the kind of ceasefire, the kind of cessation of air strikes that would be needed to carry that out safely. And so that was a real blow to hopes that perhaps the humanitarian aspect of this uh, could be somewhat ameliorated, even uh, as we are awaiting this expected Israeli ground incursion uh, into Gaza. And as we are hearing just more and more reports about the desperation uh, coming out of the Gaza Strip, this is really setting the stage for that potential visit that you mentioned from President Biden here to Israel. U.S. officials tell me that Biden is strongly considering that trip as early as this week and that officials are already on the ground here in Israel making the preparations for that visit. But this is going to be very complicated and difficult, leaving aside uh, the security implications of bringing the president of the United States uh, to a country that is now at war, where there is so much uncertainty. There are all kinds of political optics around actions that the Israeli military might take uh, while President Biden was on the ground here that could look like the U.S. was greenlighting some type of Israeli activity, as well as what concessions the U.S. might have been able to get from Israel in exchange for granting this visit that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu who had requested. 
NBC's Josh Letterman, uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Please stay safe. And joining me now is Daniel Levy, who has served as an Israeli negotiator under Prime Ministers Yitzhak Rabin and Ehud Barak during the Israel-Palestine peace talks. And Trita Parsi, an expert on the geopolitics of the Middle East and executive vice president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Thank you both for being here. Mr. Levy, I do want to start with you. Uh, and just to, to go back just a little bit, you heard uh, Josh Letterman's reporting. Um, but I was very interested uh, in having you respond to the conversation that's happening inside of Israel, in which uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu is under some pretty sharp criticism um, from his own uh, people um, for his handling of things and for the intelligence failure, um, and presumably, at least in some quarters, for what's happening in Gaza. What do you make of that conversation that's happening? Well, it's a very important variable in how this plays out, Joy, because I think Prime Minister Netanyahu is curbing his enthusiasm for the morning after whenever this military escalation ends, because that is when the accounting will begin really in earnest for what happened on October 7th, this huge systemic deterrence, intel, military failure, heaped on years, I would argue at least, of mishandling the uh, the entire Palestinian situation. But Netanyahu knows that when that happens, it's really a fool's errand to eulogize politically Benjamin Netanyahu. He's the comeback king. He's been around for so long. But I think when that happens, Netanyahu is really going to be in a hard spot. And that means I think that Netanyahu, who's been a little risk-averse militarily, despite all his bad politics in other ways, over the years, I think he has the incentive to not reach that morning after. And I think that means that this American and other efforts to try and pull this back from the brink are really going to have to be redoubled. And they might require working quite deftly with other elements inside the Israeli cabinet, inside the Israeli security establishment. Right now, they're unified, but you're going to have to probably tease out differences between them. Uh, Trina Parsi, let me bring you in and, and, and ask about the American angle of this, right? Because to add uh, to what Mr. Levy has said, you've now got the American president who came out with full-throated support for the Israeli government initially. He softened his tone somewhat and is talking more about the idea of some sort of rapprochement. Um, what do you make of his role and the prospect of a potential visit, what do you think that then adds to the situation? Well, I think you're quite right that the president uh, has focused primarily on showing tremendous support for Israel. In the last 48 hours, we've seen an increase in the language of trying to couch everything in terms of international law. But what we're not seeing is very clear statements that says that Israel, despite the fact that it obviously has a right to defend itself, its defense nevertheless has to be within the confines of international law. We've seen the president use the term international law in the same passage, but not in the sense of strongly uh, publicly uh, requiring Israel to abide by that. And I fear that the absence of stronger language is going to be problematic because it's not gonna be sufficient to deter the Israelis. And the request or the effort by the United States to make sure that the Iranians and Hezbollah doesn't get involved in this cannot work if it's only based on deterrence against them without some combination of also seeking some restraint on the Israeli side. 
Um, and then to add to that, Daniel Levy, there is a hostage situation uh, to all that both of you gentlemen have talked about. I want to play for you. Um, Lester Holt uh, of NBC News did an interview with a Hamas hostage negotiator. His name is Gerson Baskin, uh, and he's from the International Communities Organization. Let me just play a little clip of that interview. What is the low-hanging fruit in terms of a deal that could be made Right. This is what I've been putting forth since Sunday or Monday. There are um, 43 Palestinian women in Israeli prison. There are 190 minors, people 15, 16, 17-year-olds, they're defined as minors. To the best of my knowledge, they're all from the West Bank. To the best of my knowledge, none of them have murdered Israelis. That's the low-hanging fruit of what Israel has to offer Hamas for them to claim something in exchange for women children, elderly, and sick. That's the humanitarian part of this. We could add civilians in general, but I know that Hamas treats all the young men as soldiers, whether they're soldiers or not. Daniel Levy, can you envision uh, Benjamin Netanyahu making that kind of a deal? Well, another development today has been that Hamas has released the first video footage of one of the Israelis being held in Gaza with the permission of the family, apparently. If this can come forward as a more prominent part of the conversation, you just today had the confirmation of the number of Israelis held. What we need, first of all, is for those people to let go. I do think that what we just heard about the prospect of a prisoner exchange is more likely than simply a release, although Hamas has spoken of the release of foreign nationals. If we can get that dynamic moving, if we can get the dynamic of humanitarian assistance getting in and therefore just be on the beginnings of a de-escalatory cycle, that may be a way that starts to pull back and, of course, addresses the very issue of the people being held. Because right now, the path down the abyss is not going to bring security for Israelis. And, of course, it's going to bring huge suffering for Palestinians. And if President Biden goes... The way this discourse is going, that's really dehumanizing, I would urge the president, when he wraps his arms around the Israelis, shows empathy, speaks to their humanity, that he does not commit the sin of omission of forgetting the humanity and to show empathy to what's happening to the Palestinians right now as well. Because we need to get on that de-escalatory path and talk of a prisoner swap, of letting prisoners go, could be part of that. And Trita, last question to you. Talk about being unhelpful. Lindsey Graham, United States senator, has now threatened U.S. war with Iran. He said if Hezbollah, which is a proxy for Iran, launches a massive attack on Israel, um, he has said, we, you escalate the war, we're coming for you. Uh, a senator cannot commit the United States to war, but that is the way that uh, Republican Senator Lindsey Graham is talking. That cannot be helpful. Well, I, I hardly know of any situation in which Lindsey Graham's response is not to go to war Fair. with Iran. That seems to be his standard response to almost everything. But it is a really uh, dangerous situation. And then again, part of the reason why I think it's important for the United States to also uh, ask for restraint from the Israeli side is precisely that if this ends up becoming a larger regional war and the Iranians get dragged in, there's going to be a tremendous amount of pressure on Biden to also then intervene militarily in that conflict. And then we are suddenly in yet another uh, unnecessary and senseless war in the Middle East. And the United States cannot afford that in the midst of the crisis in Ukraine, in the midst of a potential crisis with China over Taiwan. That's why the de-escalation yeah. ceasefire, these measures are so important.
Uh, Daniel Levy and Trita Parsi, please come back. Uh, I really enjoyed talking with you. I think it's been very, very illuminating uh, for our audience. Thank you so much. And up next on The Readout, the violence in the Middle East spills over into the U.S. as an Illinois man is charged with stabbing a six-year-old boy to death in an alleged anti-Muslim hate crime. The Readout continues after this. The debate over the Hamas attack and Israel's retaliation in Gaza is a deeply divided one here in the U.S., fraught with intense clashes, pain, and generational trauma. It's a debate that, in some loud corners of the country, are reverting to post-9-11 tropes, Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. The hate has consequences, and they are brutal and tragic. On Saturday, Wadea Al-Fayume, a six-year-old Palestinian-American boy, was stabbed 26 times by his landlord in his Illinois home. The landlord also stabbed the child's mother more than a dozen times, though she is expected to survive. Detectives were able to determine that both victims were targeted because they were Muslim and due to the current conflict involving Hamas and the Israelis. Threats and threatening language are rising against both Muslim and Jewish communities. On Sunday, FBI Director Christopher Wray said there is an increase in reported threats inside the U.S. amid the war. Jews and Muslims alike, as well as their institutions and houses of worship, have been threatened. Joining me now is Mehdi Hassan, host of The Mehdi Hassan Show, and Michelle Goldberg, columnist for The New York Times. Her latest piece, The Massacre in Israel and the Need for a Decent Left, touches upon these complexities, in which she writes about the progressive Jewish community Quote, these are Jews who share the left's abhorrence of the occupation of Gaza and of the enormities inflicted upon it, which are only going to get worse if and when Israel invades. That the way keyboard radicals have condoned war crimes against Israelis have left many progressive Jews alienated from political communities they thought were their own. Uh, a great duo uh, to speak with today. Um, so I'm going to—I want to come back to that column and sit with that column for just a moment, Michelle, because it is excellent. I hope everyone reads it. But Thank I'm gonna, you. I want to go right back for just a moment. Thank you. Um, to the, the, the six-year-old boy, Mehdi. I want to play uh, Odai Alfayume, and he is the dad. Uh, and this is what he had to say. Oh, we—oh, okay. Uh, actually, it's not translated, so I'm going to read the translated version of it. So we're going to show him, but I'm going to tell you what he said, because uh, he did not say it in English. I'm here because I'm the father of the boy, not because I'm a political person or a religious person or anything. I'm here as the father of a child whose rights were taken from him. The issue of Hamas and Gaza are world issues, not pertaining to individual countries. I'm not big enough to speak of these things, and I hope that my son can be a means by which the issue can be, this issue can be fixed. Uh, Mehdi, talk about it just a moment, because it does feel in some ways like we are in a sort of a post 9-11 moment. Um, and, and your, your thoughts on that and on the way the discourse has been unfolding. In some ways worse than post 9-11, because you've got hate crimes against both communities. You've got hate in some ways imported from the Middle East into the United States against minority communities. And it's heartbreaking to hear a six-year-old boy is killed in the Chicago area because of a foreign conflict, because of hate that arises out of a foreign conflict. This is a family, Joy, that fled from the West Bank, fled from the occupied Palestinian territories over a decade ago to get away from violence there. And they lost their son in the United States of America in 2023. It's absolutely horrific. And you have to ask the question, who wakes up in the morning and thinks, I'm going to kill a kid today? I'm not just going to kill a kid. 
I'm going to stab the kid to death. And I'm not just going to stab them once or twice. Stab them 26 times. A six-year-old boy. What kind of hate makes someone do that? It's not hate you're born with, Joy. It's hate you're taught. And I do not believe it was a coincidence that NBC News is reporting tonight that this alleged killer was an avid listener of conservative talk radio. We have heard some vicious and vile anti-Palestinian rhetoric uh, in recent days from people like Tom Cotton, a Republican senator, saying, as far as he's concerned, Israel can bounce rubble in Gaza. Lindsey Graham saying Israel should level Gaza. Uh, Ron DeSantis saying everyone in Gaza is an anti-Semite and shouldn't be allowed into America as refugees. Marjorie Taylor Greene saying if you're pro-Palestinian, you're pro-Hamas. That is the kind of dehumanizing rhetoric. Some would say genocidal. What does it mean to flatten, level an area where two million people live? That is the kind of rhetoric that in many cases prompts people to acts of terror. Rhetoric leads to hate. Hate leads to violence. Indeed. And I mean, I think, Michelle, your piece, um, to pick up on that point, you know, for the Jewish mm -hmm. community, you know, who paraglides into a concert full of kids who are just listening to music and starts killing people or, you know, kidnaps an elderly peace activist? You know what I mean? Like, there is a sense, I think, for a lot of, you know— Jewish Americans or Jewish folks who are watching this happen of, oh, my God, this pain is so raw. And yet we're now sort of also trying to encapsulate the pain of two million people in Gaza. And it's sort of mm -hmm. all happening. But you, you I, I feel like you boiled that down so well in your column. So I want to allow you to say more. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I find those pictures of that boy so gutting. Um, and I think that, you know, what we're seeing right now is it's, you know, it's not necessarily parallel or analogous because what you're seeing on the left is not doesn't they don't have representation in Congress. These aren't people with political power. They might be people who have intellectual and cultural power. And I think it has been very, very painful for a lot of progressive Jews to see both online and in real life at certain demonstrations, you know, that you people using, for example, the paraglider as a meme, people talking about these attacks as acts of anti-colonial liberation. And what I think is important to realize is that this is really the mirror image of the most hawkish and aggressive Israeli arguments. The idea that kind of there is no such thing as a civilian in this conflict. The idea that people's that the kind of evil of of a group's leaders um, justify violence against them, that victimization that, you know, which both sides on th this conflict have in, you know, incomprehensible amounts, that victimization licenses savagery, that because of what Israel has gone through, anything that they do in Gaza is justified. That's the mirror image of the idea that because of what Gaza has gone through, these massacres are justified. And, you know, I think Mehdi is absolutely right about the language coming from both voices on the American right. You know, he spoke about some of the things that we have various senators who've said. I think it's important to note that 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 line from Tom Cotton about bouncing the rubble, that is a reference to a um, Churchill quote about nuclear weapons. Right. This is you know, that is he's really kind of talking about um something truly horrific and, and exterminationist, frankly. And you also have this language coming from the Israeli right, which has left, you know, many Palestinians, not just in Gaza, but in Israel proper and in the West Bank, um, 
terrified, fearing expulsion, fearing attack. And I think that, you know, Americans, it's so, I think most American Jews are in a very raw place because this assault brings up memories of genocide. But, and, and it's unfair that people should be called when they're grieving their this thing that happened to their own community to try to defend another community. But I think that for everyone's sake, that's what's really necessary right now. Yeah. And, you know, many I, I think about the sort of ironies, you know, having covered a lot of Ron DeSantis. This is somebody who was howling about George Soros not that long ago, which is an anti-Semitic meme. And there were Nazis marching in Florida. He didn't have a ton to say about that. People like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who have been in or, you know, um, you know, events with neo-Nazis. It is a bit ironic yeah. politically, but it is that is their politics now. It's it's irony, the politics of irony. Oh, Ron DeSantis, you know, is a walking uh, poster for hypocrisy. We know that. But I would say this. Look, I've been spent many years on this network talking about the right's kind of descent into white supremacy and <laughs> hatred for minorities. But when it comes to the Middle East conflict, there's bigotry all across the spectrum on both sides. Let's be very clear. The, some of the left, uh, some of the liberal and Democrats have been very vicious in their anti-Palestinian rhetoric, as have the right. And similarly, as Michelle points out, there are right wingers who are anti-Semitic, but there's also a lot of people on the left who have said outrageous things uh, about Jews uh, in recent days. Uh, that poster from BLM Chicago, which thankfully they've apologized for, which is, as you mentioned, Joy, the paraglider saying, I stand with Palestine, with the Hamas paraglider. I came on this network the day after the attack and I said to supporters of Israel, please don't conflate Gaza with Hamas. And I have to find myself on MSNBC now saying to Critics of Israel and supporters of the Palestinians don't conflate Hamas with Palestinians yeah. or with Gaza. And I would say this isn't as complicated as people think, right? We can all agree, yeah. kids, off limits. We can all agree that you can yeah. support the people of Gaza and also condemn horrific crimes against people at a concert. This isn't actually that complicated. Yeah, it isn't. And I will note that that BLM chapter is disavowed by the National Black Lives Matter yes. Association. They are not connected at all. Uh, very quick final word to you, Michelle. Uh, what can we do differently in our dialogue to be more helpful? I mean, I just think that people have to remember that these are human beings. There's so much dehumanization. And, pe and people, it's very difficult for pe yeah. people to empathize when they are terrified. But I think that that's yeah. what this moment calls on people to do. Yes. Marginalized communities standing together always makes the society stronger. Mehdi Hassan, Michelle Goldberg, thank you both. This is an important dialogue. Really appreciate okay. you. And still ahead. Trump is hit with another partial gag order in an attempt to stop his attacks on judges. We'll be right back. A major ruling today in Donald Trump's federal election interference case. Judge Tanya Chutkin issued a partial gag order on what Trump is allowed to publicly say about the case. Trump is no longer allowed to make or repost any statements targeting special counsel Jack Smith, his staff, their families, 
any courthouse staff or potential witnesses as it relates to the case. However, it is still fair game for Trump to attack the Biden administration and the Justice Department. Judge Chutkin defended her ruling, saying, quote, I cannot imagine any other criminal case in which a defendant is permitted to call the prosecutor deranged or a thug, and I will not permit it here simply because the defendant is running a political campaign, unquote. Trump's campaign is calling the decision an absolute abomination, and Trump's attorneys say they plan to appeal. Joining me now is Paul Butler, former federal prosecutor, Georgetown law professor, and MSNBC legal analyst. Um, Paul, any chance that this appeal will be successful, given the fact that on Truth Social last night, Donald Trump was still attacking the special counsel and the judge? The appeal is almost certain to be a loser. This is a limited order that restricts Trump from making public statements, attacking witnesses and specific prosecutors and court staff, but it fulfills the legal requirement to be narrowly tailored. There's still plenty that Trump can attack, including President Biden, the Justice Department, and the residents of D.C. who will be his jurors. So, Joy, the judge carefully threaded the needle. Trump can still campaign, and he can even lie and say that the prosecution is politically motivated. But what he can't do is to threaten or incite or subvert the legal process. I will note that the judge did not include herself, even though a woman was arrested uh, and in charge with attempting to threatening to kill her uh, after Trump said his uh, if you come after me, I'm coming after you, quote. What do you make of her limiting uh, the scope of it to disinclude herself? So she's being extra careful. She's preserving uh, this opinion from any sort of the judicial review that might reverse. But she also know that, that any defendant who's facing felony charges doesn't get to use all the words. Uh, she brought up that it's actually a crime for anybody, whether they're running for president or not, to use intimidation to influence a person's testimony. Threats aren't protected by the First Amendment. And Joy, we should note that Trump's First Amendment argument is mainly based on his status as a presidential candidate. But the judge says, has said over and over again, she's not treating Trump's day job differently from any other defendant's day job. And today she also knows that a lot of the people who Trump has attacked don't have anything to do with his presidential campaign, including General Mark Milley, uh, former Attorney General Barr, and the Georgia Secretary of State. And I will note now that Donald Trump now has two limited gag orders, one of them after he went after Judge uh, Ngoron's law clerk. Um, and so there's a limited uh, uh, gag order there as well, uh, including giving out her personal information or personal social media information. What kind of sanctions could these judges impose? So the judge didn't say today what she will do if Trump violates, but she did talk with the lawyers about the different remedies available to her. So she could call Trump into her court and verbally admonish him. You could fine him, making him pay lots of money for every violation. Judge Chuckin can also sentence Trump to home detention, meaning that he couldn't leave one of his residences before and during the trial. Ultimately, the judge could lock Trump up, which probably would have already happened to any defendant who wasn't named Donald Trump who went around talking about executing witnesses. 
Uh, I will note that there was one moment in which the judge, uh, his lawyer, Trump's lawyer, John Laro, asked that the current condition—said the current conditions of Trump's release are working. And she laughed, saying she disagreed. And what do you make of the fact that she had to reiterate to him that a remedy is not to push the trial till after the election? <laughs> yeah, so, again, the, the uh, Trump's lawyer said, well, the real way, way that we could solve this whole dilemma is to have the trial after the election. Uh, but the judge was like, I said what I said about that. The trial date is going to be in March, and I'm not revisiting that. So she was very firm. She said that she thought that the lawyer was performing as much for Donald Trump as for the courtroom. But she says politics in the moment that the parties enter her courtroom. Paul Butler, uh, thank you as always, my friend. And coming up, Jim, Congressman Jim Jordan is gathering support for his bid to become the next Speaker of the House. What this man lacks in legislative accomplishments, he sure makes up for in yelling. More next. House Republicans are getting closer to making a full-blown MAGA insurrectionist the next Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives. Going on 13 days without a speaker, with the escalating crisis in the Middle East, and just 32 days until a potential government shutdown. The Republicans' current nominee for speaker, Jim Jordan, and his allies spent the weekend lobbying holdouts in true MAGA fashion, using public bullying. The New York Times reports that Jordan's supporters posted the phone numbers of holdouts encouraging people to flood the Capitol switchboard with calls demanding that they back Jordan or face the wrath of conservative voters. Fox is also joining in on the public pressure campaign for Jordan. An Axios reporter revealed that producers for Sean Hannity have been contacting Jordan detractors. The Washington Post reported that Hannity personally contacted at least one member. So far, the pressure campaign appears to be working. Jordan has picked up the endorsement of several key detractors today and sent a Dear Colleagues letter to Republicans urging them to unite behind him. Never mind that some of the victims of sexual abuse, who say he turned a blind eye to their pleas while he was their wrestling coach at Ohio State University, say he has absolutely no business being Speaker of the House. Another witness to Jim Jordan's character. Former Republican Speaker John Boehner described him this way in 2021. You call some of these members political terrorists. Oh, yeah. Jim Jordan, especially. My colleague from Ohio. I just never saw a guy who spent more time tearing things apart and never building anything, never putting anything together. That assessment is proven in Jordan's legislative record, or lack thereof. He hasn't been the lead sponsor of any bill that has become law in his 16 years in Congress, earning him a perennial low ranking from the nonprofit Center for Effective Lawmaking, which just two years ago ranked him 202nd out of the 205 that it examined. What Jordan lacks in legislative accomplishments, he definitely makes up for in yelling, spreading conspiracy theories and lies, and defending Donald Trump. Calling it an attack is like saying the sky's blue. Of course it was an attack. 
Well, you don't, I mean, we want to know the truth. This, the statement you sent out was a statement on Benghazi, and you say vicious behavior as a response to inflammatory material on the internet. We're going to have more witnesses like we've had today that the Democrats will parade in here, and they're all going to say this. So-and-so said such-and-such to so-and-so, and therefore, we got impeached the president. When do Americans get their First Amendment liberties back? You know, I don't think anything was censured because they felt they couldn't disagree with me. I think you're pers- you're pers- making this a personal thing, and it isn't. It's not a personal thing. No, you are. That is exactly what you're doing. There's one investigation protecting President Biden. There's another one attacking President Trump. Justice Department's got both sides of the equation covered. There's also Jim Jordan's role in helping Trump mount a coup. From his texts with Mark Meadows about how Pence could overturn the election, his 10-minute conversation with Trump on the day of the attack, his request for a presidential pardon, and the fact that he refused to cooperate with the January 6th committee. The irony being that Republicans now want to give the gavel to someone who demonstrated his contempt for the U.S. House of Representatives by ignoring numerous House subpoenas. Definitely the wildest character arc in recent American politics and a new low in the history of the institution. I'll talk about it with former Republican Congressman David Jolly next. Former Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney, daughter of Dick Cheney, recently gave this stark warning about House Republicans' likely next speaker. Jim Jordan knew more about what Donald Trump had planned for January 6th than any other member of the House of Representatives. The person who knew, there were probably more than just Jim, but there was a handful of people of which he was the leader who knew what Donald Trump had planned. Now somebody needs to ask Jim Jordan, why didn't you report to the Capitol Police what you knew Donald Trump had planned? You were in those meetings at the White House. And if the Republicans decide that Jim Jordan should be the Speaker of the House, there would no longer be any possible way to argue that a group of elected Republicans could be counted on to defend the Constitution. Joining me now is MSNBC political analyst David Jolly, a former Republican congressman who is no longer affiliated with that party. Uh, David, my friend, I want to read to you what Michael Fanone, um, former Metro police officer who responded to the Capitol that day, he wasn't even supposed to be working at the Capitol, and was injured and nearly killed by January 6th insurrectionists. This was his statement today on Jim Jordan. Jim Jordan is an insurrectionist who has no place being second in line to the presidency. I witnessed the deadly assault on our democracy with my own eyes, which is why it should absolutely why it absolutely disgusts me that extreme Republicans could choose an insurrectionist and election denier as their leader, someone who knew about January 6th ahead of time yet did nothing to stop it. This is a very dark day for our democracy and should serve as a wake-up call to all Americans that we can never take our democracy for granted. Um, I just want to get your thoughts. Um, and I'll allow you to elaborate on what Michael Fanone and Liz Cheney and, and Liz Cheney had to say. I think the words of Officer Fanone and Liz Cheney are somber, and they're somber for a reason because the House Republicans may elevate someone who indeed plotted an insurrection against the Republic. And I think that we have to put into context this moment because it's not as though McCarthy really was any better. 
Right? McCarthy is the one that covered for Donald Trump after January 6th, who stood up the impeachment yeah. of Joe Biden, who refused to cooperate with the J6 committee, who gave Jordan the speaker's gavel and who would only deal in bad faith with Joe Biden. So this is not too far of a move from McCarthy to Jordan. What is different is some of the specific activities of Jordan and the tactics of Jordan. But what we know today is that the Republican caucus remains an insurrection caucus, regardless of who the speaker is. Certainly, you could say Jordan's tactics feel and look more dangerous. Will he be more successful? I don't know, because the numbers are still the numbers going up against House Democrats under Jeffries, the leader Schumer in the Senate, and the Joe Biden in the White House. But certainly a dark day should we see Jim Jordan elevated to the speakership. You know, in, in a sense, it almost feels karmic that, that, you know, Republicans would be down to someone who asked Donald Trump for a pardon because he must have believed that his role in the insurrection was potentially criminal, um, and somebody who defied subpoenas. The fact that that is the quality and character of person that Republicans think, yeah, this should be our leader, to me, it says something so devastating about one of our two great political parties that it's almost—you almost can't come back from that, right? Like, where do they go from yeah. here? Joy, I, I think the feeling with it, Speaker Jordan, is we now really feel the fact that Donald Trump has taken over the House of Representatives. You really had with McCarthy, but McCarthy did it with a smile. Jim Jordan does it with yeah. a scowl. You know who else a huge yeah. winner is tonight, should he be elevated uh, to Speaker, is Matt Gates. Matt Gates has delivered yeah. to the base a Jim Jordan, however reviled he is. And so, look, there has been some hope, and maybe House moderates or traditional Republicans, whatever we want to call them, will stand up against Jordan. But right now, to have 55 no's 48 hours ago, it now looks like all those no's are nothing but a bunch of Susan Collins, about ready to hand the yeah. speakership to Jordan. And, and yeah, and the fact that the moderates ha who have numbers are just so cowardly is, is also says something about the party. Let me ask you about the other thing. The let me put up the list of the last five House speakers. There was Kevin McCarthy, who was, you know, 15 votes and then didn't make it. Paul Ryan, John Boehner, Dennis Hastert. I want to pause on him. Also, Newt Gingrich, obviously, who went down in a scandal uh, and lost after a uh, disappointing midterm. Dennis Hastert was, you know, accused of child molestation. Child molestation. That is in their recent history. And yet, there are members of the Ohio State Wrestling uh, alumni who believe—eight people said that Dr. Richard Strauss's behavior was an open secret. Dr. Richard Strauss was a child molester. It was an open secret in the athletic department, and Jim Jordan must have known. Those are the former wrestlers. Mike Turner of Ohio said he doesn't think that's a big deal. But they do think it's a big deal. HBO is going to do a documentary on this. It's going to come out. It's going to be in a documentary produced by George Clooney. What do you think it'll do to Republicans' vibe to have their speaker on HBO being exposed as somebody who stood there, stood aside, while young men were molested? Allegedly. Probably nothing. And, and you're exactly right to draw the thread from Dennis Hastert to this, because why Republicans would entertain a candidate like Jim have victims who have credibly spoken out about what Jim Jordan must have known about those incidents. It's a dark day for the Republican Party. And, you know, what, what I think about in this moment are not the rabid Matt Gates and Jim Jordan who are making this work, but similar to the Kevin McCarthy moment where he gave everything away to the 15 rebels. I think about the 200 that went along with it. 200 in January that said to Kevin, OK, we'll let you burn the place down with Gates. Go ahead. The people that are going to elevate Jim Jordan tomorrow I think about the 200 that America doesn't really know their name, it's supposed to be the Main Street ones. 
And now what we're finding out is Jim Jordan has been a Trojan horse candidate for the right for the last 10 years, and he's on the I'm with Michael Fanone, and I am with David Jolly on this. Uh, this is a dark day, uh, and it is a sad moment for our country that this is where we are. David Jolly, thank you. And that is tonight's readout. Go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Visit msnbc.com app to download.